Let's get into it then. All right. Awesome sauce. I ask that the gods and goddesses of our respective paths bless this circle so that we may be free and protected within this space. And if you have this one word, pagan or paganism. For the pagan community. Exactly. Right. The the big umbrella. And that was fucking fantastic. No, the best of the podcast the ever. Hey! We're three pagans. And a cat. And may the works this day of, be of the highest good for all present and those listening, so mote it be. The circle is cast. Hey folks, CJ Grimm here from Poking Dead Things. It's a hard job doing what we do, and it can get kind of gross. We know that you work hard too, so I'm here to tell you that at the end of a hard day, nothing beats a hot bath and a cold beer. So treat yourself right, head to Twisted Willow Soap Company, and indulge in a bath bomb with your favorite six-pack. Remember, the only girly thing about a bath bomb are the sounds you're going to make in excitement. Twisted Willow Soap Company. Body. Mind. Soul. There's no quote because there's no topic. Welcome to our community, Jason Mankey 2, the 94th episode of Three Pagans <laughs> and a Cat. Our opening today is me and no opening at all. Thanks to Velocity Rose for our intro music. You can find more of their work at VelocityRose.com. You may call me Ode. You can call me Carr. I'm the idiot that made this the second one of these. And I'm also Ode's father. <laughs> Mary Meat. My name is Gwyn, Ode's mother. And Why did y'all laugh the second time you knew what I was going to do? <laughs> no, because it's because you said two. <laughs> with with <laughs> such emphasis of, yeah, we fucked up the first one and didn't record. <laughs> yes, dear listeners, we you are actually listening to the second attempt at a conversation mm-hmm. with Jason Mankey because, well, shit happens. Yep. Car fucked up. That's what it comes down to. No, I just forgot to hit record. Car that's forgot. car fucked up. That's, that's not a, there's no shame in it. I fuck up on no shit shame, all the time. No blame. It just is. So we have a new panther, Elizabeth Bull. Welcome, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And we have a new cat, Kai Oakenshield. Welcome, Kai. Yes. And all right. Lo- and I'm going to say it again. We love our patrons, and yes. we do because you guys have been amazing. Yeah, you've yes. been really supportive so during supportive. pandemic time. During pandemic, when we were yeah. really expecting to see like a major fall in the Patreon support. Yeah, and we've actually gotten more. Yeah, so, so you guys yeah. have been amazing, and we love you. So thank you for that. The other things are, I do every Sunday mm-hmm. from two to four <laughs> a a Zoom call that has absolutely no meaning. And no anything, just it's just, just a kind of freaking hang out, and I don't have to remember to hit record on it. <laughs> so that's a good thing. And then every Monday through Friday at 8 a.m., Gwen does a meditation on Facebook Live. Which I have also, if you have been watching, have forgotten to hit re- uh, <laughs> record. Those, actually, not the record button, the, uh, the uh, audio. Audio, audio, yeah. So audio. <laughs> She did a whole one without any audio without on any it. Audio. My microphone was turned <laughs> off. That was the best meditation ever because everybody ridiculous. was like, oh, I What's feel so hilarious calming. though is they kept putting like little likes and loves on there. I'm like, people, you can't, hear, sake, you can't hear me. I'm just blah lying <laughs> silently. It's just like seeing your face. <laughs> it was so, I was like, oh my God. So yeah. Okay. And then May 29th at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. That's right. We will be doing Reefer Madness on Sia.Live. The links for that are on both Facebook page and group, and we'll soon be on Discord as well. And I'm really looking forward to that, because that yes. is a ridiculous movie from the 30s. It's going to be a fun time. And if you were with us for Night of the Living Dead, we had a really good time. We did, so. yes, yeah. So and I'm there's looking- no cost to this one either. Yep. Yeah. This one's great, too. It's, 
It's another one that's old. way out of way copyright. Out. And I believe currently the Adams family is winning. winning for the first paid movie that we yep. would have to do. So, um, because you know Paramount wants their money anyway. So I believe the Adams family is winning, kind of hands down, right? Yeah, it, it had 60 to 70% of the vote last year. Yeah, okay, so, so I think that's looks the one like we'll the do. Adams Family is the movie that we'll do that requires everybody to pay for it. So although, that'll be in a few weeks. That'll be in a couple of weeks. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, all right. Uh, so we're house kept. Yep. House kept, house swept. Hi, and Jason now, Mikey. Hi, Jason. Hi. Welcome back. Again. <laughs> nice to be on the show for the second and a half time. <laughs> Obviously, we acknowledge our mistakes when we make them. Yep. You know, like, as I said, what else am I going to do today? I blame it on the mead, but it's, I've only had a can of it. You barely started, yeah. I've only had one can. Yeah. Since you gave your introduction the last time. Right. Well, just tell people to go back and listen to the original Our Community Jason Mankey episode, which was episode, like, 25 or something. It was a billion years ago. But in case you don't know. (laughs) Or a year and a half. Jason Mankey is a is an author extraordinaire. Mm-hmm. He's a teacher. He's uh, he blogs and essentially runs Patheos Pagan, Pagan the largest right? pagan blog on the internet. Yep. He and his wife Ari are uh, leaders of two covens in California. Is that correct? That's right. You all have this down. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we've gone through this recently. He has also started his own podcast, which talks about witchcraft and whiskey and and wit, I believe is what you called it. Isn't that correct? We hope that there's wit on the show. It is not promised. There's three W's. You should get at least one of those W's every week. I thought I saw that you'd get at least two. You'd probably get it. I'm worried, like, when I have John Beckett on, that I have Druid on, then it might just be whiskey. Right? So so I can only really promise one. Maybe witch adjacent. There'll at least be a witch adjacent. There, there's a witch there. So Yeah, I'm still there. Right. Yeah. Oh so. my gosh. And now where can people listen to the podcast? Right now it's at Blog Talk Radio because I'm a Luddite and I have it there. <laughs> it's, it's airing Thursdays at 8 Eastern, 5 Pacific live. And then you can listen to it later on that site. And it's going to be after I have like four episodes under the belt. I'm going to start putting it on iTunes again and on Spotify. So that sounds good. Awesome. Yeah. But I mean, there's so many and like podcasts and there's like, then there's like the creme de la creme of podcasts, like three pagans and a cat. And it's pretty low in the pecking order. (laughs) You've been around a lot longer than us, Jason. I don't think you'll have a hard time finding an audience. That's right. You already have like, you know, better guests than we've had. Today included. Um. <laughs> no, and in fact, he's... For sure, already, absolutely. I, I think he has the same guests, so we are, you know, sharing guests. We are in some ways. Yeah, you've had Guion, right? Who was awesome. I had Gwyn, yeah. Yep, and then Australia Taylor, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, Australia. I did the podcast a few years ago, because it was part of the Pagans Tonight radio-like thing. And then the person who was doing Pagans Tonight... And they had like three shows on a night every day of the week. The person who was sort of running it decided that he was going to stop it and rebrand it or something. And then that never happened. And I was lazy. I didn't want to do it anymore because, you know, you have to research people, you know, you know, you know, every once in a while, like I go on a podcast and it's obvious they've never read anything that I've written, (laughs) you know, so, you know, or they like fixate on one book that I wrote four years ago or something, you know, they never got past that page on Amazon, but I always try to know who I'm talking to and about them and what's up and do some, at least a little bit of research. 
like you all tonight, you know. Jason has two covens with Ari. You know, <laughs> and Jason has written seven, count them, seven books for Llewellyn. Five of them are currently published. That's right. right. Yeah. The sixth one went to the publisher, like the press, this month. So That's so exciting. And yeah. which one will that be? Llewellyn's Little Book of Yule. It is Christmas time in May, and we're very excited about that. And the book comes out in September, the perfect time of year for all your Yuletide needs. So I'm very excited about That's that. Right. You always have to ship it way early so booksellers can get it. I, I don't know exactly what when they do what they do. I didn't think it needed to come out until like November 1st. but I'm looking forward to it because I love Yule. I love Christmas. And so anytime I can get an additional information or some suggestions on how to decorate or, or what to do. Gwen for... loves holidays. I do. Oh my fucking God. <laughs> I love holidays. No, I'm with oh you. I, I love the holidays. I love Yuletide. Mm-hmm. That is like my favorite holiday. It looks like Christmas is thrown up all over our house. That's right. You know, it is bad. I start in the middle of November, slowly putting lights up. You know, I take the Halloween lights down and I instantly put the Christmas lights up. What am I supposed to do? Pull the couch out twice? I'm not going to fucking do that. You know, it's one time. Change the lights. It's not that big a deal. If we want lights hung up for behind the couch, she's going to either have to move the couch herself or stand on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You say that now, but just wait. But uh, so tell us a little bit. You, we actually talked a lot about the the other book that's coming out in our first iteration of this episode. (laughs) In take one, in take one. But let's in take two. Let's start by talking about this Yule book, which is coming out in September. So the Yule book is different than anything I've ever written. It's part of a series, and I've written a Llewellyn series book before. I've got my three tool books Mm -hmm. or my two and a half tool books. You know, those were for a series. But the Llewellyn's Little Book series, they have very kind of strict parameters about what you're supposed to do, like how many exercises, they call them, have to be in the book, which is either a spell or a craft project. And they're books without footnotes, too. So that's really hard for me Mm. because I want to footnote everything. And I don't think that they're supposed to be super full of history, though there is some history. So there's like decorating tips and magic spells and Stuff about the Krampus and oh, what I want, man, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> there's a there's also like history of holidays past Yule, like New Year's Eve, like New Year's, and mm-hmm. some of the weirder sort of English ones like Plow Day, mm-hmm. and there's Twelfth Night. So to call it the little little book of Yule is almost wrong. I wanted to call it the little book of Yule Tide. Oh yeah, because that you know it's so not it's not written from just a witch perspective. I mean, there's like a a spell with the nativity scenes in it. You know, there's all kinds of shit. If, if people <laughs> do it in December, it's in the book somewhere, nice. you know, and I don't call it a Yule tree. I just call it a Christmas tree, you know, cause it's not just for pagans and witches. It's for anybody who's kind of magical. So it was a really different book to write. And it was challenging because it's really hard to write about these holidays in March and April and May and that's when I was writing the book. So Kelly from Tree Wizard Creations just said, is it a smaller version of their recent Sabbat series? No, my book would have to be better than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I think the focus is just different because those books are really for pagans. Right. right. And these are kind of more for a general audience. And I've never read the Yule book, so I don't know, you know, how good it is. And I'm sure it's fine. But, you know, this is my take, and it's really kind of 
a joyful celebration of the holiday period. You know, I started Thanksgiving and go through until the middle of January with things to do and little spells adapted from pagan antiquity and also, you know, things like the Catholics might have done in the 10th century that I thought were magical and could be adapted to that. There's a lot of recipes for booze in it because it's my book. Nice. So there's Saturnalia wine and wassail and another drink called lamb's wool in there. There's a bunch of booze. You know, that's how we roll in my house. (laughs) You know, so I think it's just kind of a different thing. And as I said, you know, there's stuff for New Year's. There's stuff. There's a little bit about Thanksgiving. There's a little bit about Kwanzaa. There's lots of stuff about all these different holidays. So it's not just about the winter solstice. Did you remember to include my birthday in it? (laughs) No, because I didn't include mine. Oh, well. (laughs) There you go. What day is your birthday, Car? January 12th. I think we get that far. Plow Day can be that far into the season. Maybe I'll just take Plow Day over because I love to plow. <laughs> I will say I do have the, the Yule Sabbath that was referenced. And it is a, it's a nice book. It is definitely just about the winter solstice. I found, like, it didn't really have everything I wanted in it. I wanted, you wanted more, something more comprehensive. I wanted something more comprehensive and more like what you're describing, this Yule Tide, you know, something for the yeah. entire season. So I'm looking forward to reading your book. And it's also pretty short, so it doesn't take very long to read, yeah. which is nice. It just took forever to write. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, like, my last two books are over 120,000 words. Those are big books by Llewellyn Standards, yeah. a lot of words. And so to have to write a book that's brief, was mm-hmm. much more challenging, really, because, you know, you wanted to write about something, but it has to be limited to 500 words in this section. That was that was really kind of rough for me. Having flashbacks to my philosophy professor who was all about brevity. Yeah, my magical name is Verbose, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was rough. But, you know, I think it'll be fun. I think people will like it. I'm really excited about it, though, because it's nice not to just right for witches, mm-hmm. you know, to try to do something a little bit different. I know that in our house, we celebrate Christmas like we celebrate the winter solstice because what else am I going to do that day on Christmas? There's nothing to do. Everything else yeah. 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 And our family's going to call and all that other shit. So, I mean, we celebrate that and secular new year and everything. There yeah. are some football games. There's basketball. There's not always football. Oh, that's true. That's true. And what I like about the idea is of making it more of a general population kind of thing is that it shows people that witches aren't that scary, that our holidays aren't that different. Already kind of a growing understanding and acceptance because witchcraft and Wicca and is popular, if you will. It's It's trending, if you will. In the popular media, I think it's a great idea to get to help people just become more comfortable with our presence and our our holidays. Well, and frankly, <laughs> frankly, hopefully, it will help some pagans become yeah. more comfortable with Christianity. Exactly that right. too. Before we had the kerfuffle of me not hitting the fucking record button, <laughs> we talked about your witch's wheel of the year book, and since we did record that, I'd like for you to actually talk about it again. <laughs> so in December, Llewellyn released the witch's wheel of the year. Rituals for Circles, Solitaries, and Covens, which is a book I've wanted to write for a long time. I love ritual. I love thinking about ritual. I love getting ritual right. I love breaking ritual down into the components. 
because every ritual is a series of mini rites, really. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about all of those in a book. But really, I also wanted to offer rituals to people that gave them something to do. And if you read a lot of witch books from the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s, when you read rituals, there's just not much going on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, here's a guided meditation and here's a flower. Blessed Beltane. That's not a good ritual. Right. You know, and I think that as a community, we've progressed far past that, but we don't have a lot of those written down. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to offer rituals that gave people things to do. Even a book like Wicca, A Guide for the Solitary Practitioner by Scott Cunningham, which is a pretty good book. I think the rituals are shit. They're just boring. Like they, there's just not any of that transformational magic involved in the rituals. I don't really feel like when I read them or even did them when I was a kid that I was connecting to the things that I was supposed to connect with. So I wanted to write rituals that I thought accomplished that. Whether or not they do is for the reader to decide. Maybe I'm full of crap and my rituals are crappy. (laughs) You know, it's hard to say. Everybody likes different things. But I wanted to do rituals that had that. And I also wanted to offer people ideas and suggestions on how to do ritual. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that differentiates our community from other communities in the spiritual and religious world is none of us really went to school to do any of this. And you think of like a Methodist minister, they have to go to university for four, six years and study and learn a bunch of stuff. And then they're kind of an apprentice before they take over their own church. So they learn how to preach. They learn how to do ritual. They learn how to lead things. And for most of us, you know, who lead public ritual, we decided at one point that we were okay leading public ritual. And then we jumped into it and started doing it without any training. And usually you get better just by failing a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write a book that would offer tips to do ritual, uh, make it better, make it easier for people, make it more effective for the people who go you know, big rituals are the hardest. When you do a ritual of over 50 people, really even over 20 people, the dynamics of the ritual have changed a lot. And I see people doing small things and large rituals that really kind of ruin the ritual in a lot of ways. So when you do that big ritual and somebody's calling the quarter and they walk past the circle of the ritual mm-hmm. so that they're like shouting into the void instead of being heard by the people in the ritual, it's a little thing. Right. But you can't hear them. You don't know what they're saying. You don't know what they're doing. Most of us were not theater majors. So, you know, you need hints. You need a little help. Yeah. And so this is, these are the things that I've learned by failing really hard in my earlier days. We've only actually done one ritual. Yeah. In uh, for, for a public thing. We did it arts and craft and we probably had uh, maybe 30. 20 people there, 30 people. 30 people. Maybe, um, yeah. At the ritual. You can only fit that so many people in that room. But the three of us are very loud anyway. Yes. And we all have theater experience. And we all have theater experience. So we all, A, are very loud, and B, just emote everything Mm -hmm. over emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think it came off fairly well. Uh Um, It'll be super interesting to see. We're actually supposed to be going, we'll see if it actually happens in August, to the Connecticut gathering. We're supposed to do that ritual or do a ritual there. Mm -hmm. So it'll be super interesting to see, like, how do we do with a bigger group of people if there's a bigger group of people there? And something we're trying this summer solstice is we're going to try to do one online. Mm -hmm. That's another challenge. That could have been 
that could have been like a fourth part of the book if you know I'd written it a little bit later mm-hmm. because all no, no, online rituals its own series of challenges. But I did want to ask you this because I do have your book, The Wheel of the Year, and I do love it. I think it's a great book. Um, one of the things I liked, especially about the solitary rituals, is that you seem to keep it very simple. It's like it's not complicated with a lot of different foo for all that you have to have a million different things, I, which I appreciated. But the one thing that I did kind of notice is that it's a little gendered because you have a high priest and a high priestess and things like that. And so is there a way to make this maybe a little bit more friendly to people who want to do a non-gendered, a non-gendered right. kind of a ritual? I mean, a, I, or gender I assume, neutral. I assume you could just take out that and just put your roles together or something. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I do mention in the book several times that I use the terms high priest and high priestess in the book because usually when I'm sharing a ritual, it's one that I've written. Sure. And I'm doing it usually with Ari. Right. Mm-hmm. So those are the two words that we use. If you look closely at the, at those books, like all of the lines are said by the high priestess because mm-hmm. she's much better at it than I am. <laughs> so I make her say everything. I, I thought about using words like officiant or something. But I, I think they sound way too clinical. I don't like them. So I went with high priest and high priestess. And when I looked at the book, there's parts of me that really regrets that decision. Mm-hmm. Because I really try very hard to write inclusive books. And I just haven't found the word. The book does say, you know, you can do a ritual with two high priestesses or two people who don't identify with any gender. And it's fine. I don't think that you have to have a high priest and a high priestess. You know, all you need are people leading the ritual. That's all you need. Uh, so, I mean, I mentioned that in the book, and I hope people look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, how they were written just kind of reflects how I wrote them for the coven that I'm in and sure. often sort of the places that we were doing them. Mm-hmm. You know, I believe that anybody can call down a goddess and anybody can call down a god. And, you know, gender has really nothing to do with any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm a and I'm a gardenarian, and I believe that. <laughs> I mean, I'd argue with the rest of them, some of them. Most of us under 50 are pretty progressive, but there's still a group that's not. But yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And I wish I had a better answer. And sometimes I wish I had written the book differently. I hope that didn't come off as like a criticism. I just was really wondering because I think there may be people out there who are like, well, maybe this book isn't for me, but I, if you just are flipping through, if you're just flipping through it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the, like the parts about how to use this book are not the ones that people are going to flip through the bookstore and go, wow, this right. looks like the right. part right. of the book. So, yeah, I'm sure that probably comes up for some people. Mm-hmm. I really do like it, though. I thought that the information was good because you do give some information about you know, the history of the holiday and, and things like that. And I think that the – I do think that the rituals that you include in there are accessible and they can be used by people and, and kind of – they don't have to be done verbatim. Right. And I will say as a non-binary person, I'm pretty used to just like Fliff, fliffing it. Yeah. To just, to just taking out the stuff I don't like. Right. 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 Yeah. And I, I did. So I, I don't want it. Like I said, I didn't want it to sound like it's a criticism, but it is something that we've been talking about a lot right. on our podcast for personal reasons, but also it's something that's come up not that long ago. Car and I were talking about yeah. Wicca and witchcraft and binary and non-binary and how do we address that? We were discussing that again just this last week. So I guess it's just one of those things that is on my mind. Yeah. It's something that has been on my mind a lot the last couple of years. I know that if you read books from the seventies and sixties and eighties, you know, Wicca and I'm a Wiccan is especially called 
a fertility religion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the books really emphasize the male female dynamic and everything. And I hate that. I fucking, I really fucking hate that. I don't think that my, I don't think my religion is a nature religion or a fertility religion. Mm-hmm. I think Wicca is a magical religion because magic infuses everything that I do in the circle. Mm-hmm. The rest of that is kind of people's perception. And I think those perceptions are wrong. Like I think Gerald Gardner was fucking wrong in the fifties <laughs> and I'm a gardenarian, you know, because they had this idea of gender and they really sort of doubled down on it. a lot of it comes from Dion Fortune. And I think there was just a lot of ignorance at that particular period of time. And I think we're smarter now. I think we know more things. Yes. And what we do should reflect that increased amount of knowledge. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I do think that we do need to be able to adapt as our culture adapts, as our understanding adapts. People have a hard time letting go of change what, is scary. Change is scary. Uh, tradition. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And, tradition. Uh, and people have a hard time letting go of what seems to be an important part of their religion, important concept. I do have one thing I want to get to before we move on beyond this book is that people who read this book should not necessarily read your wheel of the year that's on your Facebook page. Oh, yeah. They're very much two separate things. Experiences. That's more of a fairy tale. (laughs) One has truth in it, and the other one's a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) You pick? No, the book has truth. The book has truth. And I do want to break here. I do think that if you get The Witch's Wheel of the Year by Jason Mankey, you will enjoy it. There's a lot you can learn from it. And uh, I do highly recommend it. Okay, I have not read it yet. Nope. Uh, but I know Jason, so mm-hmm. I'll give it at least four and a half stars because I know Jason. <laughs> um, and I've read a bunch of his earlier books right, his and work. know that, like, he cites everything yeah. well. He does, yeah. you know, so Jason. I have no doubts that Jason's books are going to be good because they're Jason's books. Well, of course, there are two Jasons who guard a door. One tells the truth, the second tells lies. <laughs> yes, that is definitely the truth. <laughs> True. That um, is true. <laughs> we we need to find a way to get your Facebook Wheel of the Year out to more people. You know that there's good and bad with the Facebook <laughs> Wheel of the Year. So so if you're listening to 2.5, uh-huh. yeah. On my Facebook page a couple of years ago on the holiday of Maybon, which is a word given to the autumn equinox in the mid 70s. It's not a traditional holiday. It's not ancient or old. And I decided to make fun of it. And you talk about it, you know, as being a very ancient and old thing. And everybody thought it was really funny. So I was like, I'm going to do that again at Samhain. So I did. And then by Yule, people were like, when are you going to write your fake Sabbath history for Yule? (laughs) So it kind of grew into a thing. And so at every Sabbath now, I write or I rerun one of my older ones. Because they're hard to rewrite a new one every year. Mm -hmm. I'm just... Coming up with that many lies is difficult. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it sounds pseudo-scholarly, you know, like, you know, this is where the word comes from, and it's all garbage. And I th- hope that people pick up on it as not being truthful, but there's always people who don't. Like I, <laughs> Jason, I, I do believe that your ideas about Samhain are wrong because the ancient Irish didn't have any pumpkins. They're from North America. I'm like, 
Thank you for thinking I am a total idiot. I really appreciate it. See, but that's still better than the people who read it and think this sounds completely legitimate, and I believe it 100%. Because Jason Mankey wrote it. Uh-huh. That's right. I've had people get mad at me saying that I am probably spreading false information and that 10 years from now, someone's going to write a book and they're going to quote things from those posts. That's probably <laughs> that what I, I think what we need to do is we need to have a website for Mason Janky. Mason, Mason Janky. That is all just those. You know, it's fun to do. I like writing them because it's ridiculous and fun. Uh, but it is really, you know, it's like a two sides to me. You know, there's like the author with a lot of footnotes, and then there's the guy who makes a lot of things up. I'm really proud of some of them. I, I love Two Sheeps. That's like my favorite. Some of them are works of art. Yes. Like, should be in the Louvre. Like... <laughs> People keep asking for me to put them into a book. Llewellyn said they would not publish them as a book. They were very adamant about that. <laughs> There's this wonderful little thing called self-publication. It's true. Um, I've thought about, like, hiring Mickey Mueller or something to do art. Yeah. And then doing, like, a GoFundMe. And then for $30, you get, like, a book with the stories and the art. And it's a hardcover, and it's pretty, and it's nice. But part of me... There's so many things that need to be funded in the pagan community. Mm-hmm. And so many people, I'm very blessed. My wife has a great job. We have a really good life together. And I'm always kind of weird about asking for money from people because of that, because I think that there are so many good things that could go to our community. And I'm not sure a book of Jason's fake sabbats is really what we need to be investing in. Well, and, and Rashala has an excellent title. It's Those Satirical Sabbats. That's a really great title. Then I would have to spend money to license that title. <laughs> the, the whole thing is, like, we as pagans, and I've, I've read, I would say, quite a few pagan books. Mm. Probably not to the same level that Ode has or to the same depth that Ode has. But none of them are funny. Like, there's not a book out there in the pagan community. Occasionally one will have a funny moment. Well, sure, a funny moment. But there's nothing that's like, oh, we can kind of make fun of ourselves type book in the pagan community. And I think it's something we're lacking. I think there are a lot of funny books in the pagan community. Yes, but those were written seriously. What he means is there's no joke books. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think Diary of a Witch by Sybil Leak was written to be funny, (laughs) but I find it hysterically funny. Right, and and that's the issue I have, is that they were written seriously. I want one that's written to be funny. I don't need a joke book, but a book that's written to be funny and happens to be funny as well, because some books are written to be funny and are fucking terrible. I think Carr just thinks that we in the pagan community just take ourselves way too seriously. Yes. Oh, I think so. I think we do. <laughs> which is what's so I, great about your satirical Sabbaths, which we're going to call them now. <laughs> yeah. I, I sometimes call it witchier than thou syndrome. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's true. Because there's a lot of witchier than now. Look at the skull I have on my altar. <laughs> that makes me the greatest witch in the world, you know? And, feels like that sometimes and we're all trying to do the best that we can and that's kind of what we have to accept about all of you know each other and it's not a contest witchcraft isn't a contest i think people take witchcraft and paganism so seriously though because we've had to fight so hard over the years to be taken legitimately in by other religions and by society at large and the government and you know there's been a lot of battles since the witchcraft laws were repealed in england and gerald gardner started promoting wicca i think that's why 
we tend to take ourselves so seriously. It's, I guess it's for me, it's the more kind of the competition in the community. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I take what I do very seriously, but sometimes within the community, it feels like a competition to be serious. So there was this meme a few years ago that it was just like, it said like traditional witchcraft, scarier than your Wicca, just scarier. (laughs) And it it made me angry because people are diminishing what I do. Right. I mean, that was the point of that. Like their witchcraft is somehow better than my witchcraft. And, you know, that that's kind of the witchier than that that bothers me. That's people taking what they do as being more important or maybe more valuable than what somebody else does. I am not somebody who demeans Instagram witches, you know, like sometimes you see that on, you know, well, Mm -hmm. they just take pretty pictures of their spell work. So they do. It makes them happy they are obviously getting something out of their spell work or they wouldn't be doing it, mm-hmm. you know, and maybe, maybe it's not as important to them as it is to me, but it works for them and that's good enough. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's, it's, I just don't like the competition sometimes that you see in our community, especially amongst witches. I can get behind you on that. Definitely. Well, I think it's across the board too, because I see it in Druidry. Yeah. I'm sure Ode sees it in Heathenry. Yeah. You know, that, Although the, the heathen version often comes with some extra white nationalism. Right, yeah. <laughs> You're not heathen enough or racist enough. <laughs> Thanks to our Tiger Solanox for introducing us to Weavers of the Web, an interfaith pagan ATC, that's Aquarian Tabernacle Church, organization based in Lansing, Michigan. Weavers of the Web is a public Wiccan church that aims to be family-friendly, supportive, and informative with the goal of ensuring that no one ever needs to be alone in their spiritual needs. Weavers is currently raising funds for the down payment on their property, which would allow them to expand their current network of resources. During social distancing, you can find them online at weaversoftheweb.org or on Facebook at facebook.com, Weavers ATC. Weavers is also holding regular Zoom meetings, online rituals, and Discord discussions during this time. It's time for Ancestors! 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 Spotlight! Oh, God, that was terrible. We should do that again. Nope. It is what it is. We do just the one. All right, Jason. Jason is going to do our ancestors spotlight. So this kind of goes on with what we were talking about earlier. I want to talk about a a man named Dr. Leo Martello. And Leo Martello was one of the first public witches in the United States. Like, really, really out there. But he was more than just a witch. He was also one of the first really, really public spokespeople for gay rights in the United States. Oh, awesome. And they went hand in hand. Um, if So this is a little off of Dr. Martello, and I don't really think he had a doctorate, but that's how he presented himself. <laughs> There's a book called The Bull of Heaven, and it's about a gentleman named Eddie Bozinski, mostly, but it's really about New York paganism in the 1970s. And it really touches on a lot of the discrimination that gay and lesbian pagans faced, especially in the witchcraft community, made me really angry at a lot of my Wiccan downline folks. Uh, and Dr. Martello was really involved in a lot of that, in a lot of that scene. And I think it's important that we realize how unaccepting we used to be, especially in the 70s or 80s. But uh, Dr. Martello was born in 1930, and he passed away from cancer in the year 2000. And he says that he was initiated into a Strega tradition in 1951 by his family. And he uses the word coven in there. So it sounds very traditional. 
though I don't think coven is an Italian word in any way, shape, or form. But I do believe, though, that his grandmother probably practiced forms of folk magic, which he adopted. So I'm not saying that he's lying really in any way, shape, or form. His came from a magical family. He probably learned the magic that that family did. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wrote one of the first witchcraft books by an American for an American. It's called The Weird Ways of Witchcraft. And it was recently republished by Weiser a couple of years ago. It does not hold up particularly well. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't fool yourself that the, the secrets of the world are going to be revealed in The Weird Ways of Witchcraft. But to write about witchcraft in 1969 in the United States was pretty extraordinary because people really weren't doing that at the time. And he in, he interviews a bunch of people who were involved in witchcraft, especially in the New York scene. Some of it really isn't relevant to what most of us do today, but it's still a fascinating little historical document. And Martello was one of the first people to try to do anything like this in the state. So it's pretty big in that way. About the same time this book came out, he founded the Gay Liberation Front with a couple of other people, and it was a group that embraced the word gay. So the Village Voice at the time was going to stop using the word gay. Uh, It was a game of respectability politics. They distanced themselves from some of the Stonewall riots, some of the people in the gay community. Mm -hmm. And Leo Martello was one of those people who was like, I'm not going to distance myself from fucking Stonewall. You know, these are my people and I'm going to stand up and I'm proud of my people for doing what they did. And everybody should gather around these people and we should be loud and out and proud to be gay. So he was really involved in gay rights. In 1970, he decided that he was going to hold a witch in in Central Park on Halloween. And he applied for the permit. And the parks department said no to the permit. Really? And then he said religious discrimination. And then the parks department said, okay, you can have your permit. (laughs) Oh, wow. And they had about a thousand people there for the first ever witch in in New York in 1970. Wow. That's really an extraordinary number considering there are probably less than 10,000 pagans in the United States, self-identifying pagans or witches Mm -hmm. at the time in the United States. So really big deal, made the local news. And out of that, he founded the Witches Anti-Defamation League. I've heard of that. Yeah, which was really kind of an active concern up through the 90s. Mm -hmm. New people involved in it in Michigan. There There was a court case involving a girl who wore a pentacle to school in the nineties and she had like the school said, no, you can't do that. So she sued. Well, good for her. The witches anti-defamation league were the people who were helping to push the case forward and provided expert witnesses and stuff. It was a big deal at the time. It feels like a long time ago. And really it was, I mean, we're talking 25, yeah, yeah, 30 years ago now. Right. Yeah. Uh, But I mean, that was Leo Martello. I mean, he was really about, witches rights and he was about gay rights and he was about inclusion and creating traditions that appealed to everybody and you know i think because he didn't write a sexy book you know like this is how to do strega witchcraft he kind of fell off the radar of a lot of witches especially by the 80s and by like the last 
15, 20 years of his life, he was more involved in the gay rights struggle than doing things with witchcraft. So, I mean, he stepped back from our community a little bit, but he was still writing things uh, about magic. His last book that came out was a tarot book the year that he, uh, 10 years before he passed away. Uh, so, you know, he was always sort of there on the periphery and really he's one of America's great witchcraft figures. I don't think that we would be here today in the same way that we are without Leo Martello. So I always like to sing his praises when I can. And somebody for people to add to an ancestor altar. Yeah. Yep. He is, we have a shrine in our ritual room full of our mighty dead. And they don't just come from our witchcraft tradition or anything. They come from across the pagan community. Mm-hmm. And Leo Martello was one of the first people I wanted to put there. That's that awesome. is so Very beautiful. Cool. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. it looks like someone from our, uh, uh, yeah, on the Discord, on the Discord already is quietly adding him to their altar. That's right. Now that's yeah. one of the reasons why we wanted to do this, start this segment of spotlighting ancestors yeah. that we might not have heard of before. Like you said, fallen off the radar or for whatever reason, people have forgotten who they are. And this is an individual who needs to be remembered. And I didn't know who he was. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? No. I mean, I know about the Gay Liberation Front, and I knew about the Witches Anti-Defamation Front. I did not know know that he was was instrumental in both of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know there was any link between those organizations at all. So. Cool. Um, I, if you can, Ode, because you're, you're a nerd like me, you read a lot. If you can, uh, Bull of Heaven, you can order it on Amazon and other places. I'm sure they can get it for you at uh, Arts and Craft, which is a store that I love. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, th- it's a fantastic book, and it's really as much about the gay rights struggle in 1970s New York City as it is about witchcraft. And as I said, it's supposed to be a biography of a person. But it's really not his biography. It's a biography of several different people, Martello being one of them, along with Herman Slater and a few other people. But the stuff about the gay rights struggle really hit me while I was reading that book in March and February of this year, because it's not something that we really encounter in a lot of our history books, especially people that were there on the ground. And it was so... Like, it just filled me with joy and love to read about witches who were really adjacent to the Stonewall riots. I think Stonewall should be a national holiday in the United States. But, you know, that were really there. And Martella was one of those people that was really there as a witch and as a gay man and was proud of who he was and worked to make the world a better place. I think as witches and pagans, we do a really bad job with our history to some degree. We have not done a good job preserving music especially uh, or periodicals and we've forgotten a lot about a lot of these people who really shaped this world that we are in today mm-hmm. you know unless you have like a best-selling book for 20 years you kind of slip through the cracks and i think we really need to be more aware of it uh, you know these people kind of set the table for where we are that we can have this sort of robust pagan life without worrying about it like falling down or being taken away from us. I think that would make a great documentary. It really would make a great documentary. The book is really overly long in some ways. Like, you know, you know there's like eight pages spent, like anytime the location changes, like, you know, this apartment that they moved into was used to be, a, you know, a Chinese restaurant and now right. it's an apartment, you know, and I'm like, Jesus. And it's kind of a self-published thing. So there's some, oh, so there was no know, editor it, saying it's great that you have this information, but the audience doesn't need it. 
<laughs> yeah, there, there was no editor, you know. And in some places, it really helps the book because I can imagine Llewellyn, like, editing some of the things out that I found really fascinating uh-huh. because some of the, the gay rights struggle really isn't always connected to the pagan and witch narrative in the book. Mm-hmm. But I, but those were some of my favorite parts of the book. Right. And, you know, that they would go off, like the writer would go off on a tangent about, you know, local magazines and stuff for four or five pages. You know, I was in awe. I thought I wrote long books and then this full <laughs> heaven book. That's cool. But it, but it really was a great book. And we don't also, we don't have a lot of books that document American pagan history. Yeah. Right. So, a lot of them really are about British history up until 1970 or something, right? Yeah. Uh, Triumph of the Moon, which is really a fantastic book by Dr. Ronald Hutton, is focused exclusively on Britain. Mm-hmm. He says that in the title. Uh, but really, it's sort of after the 1960s, there's not a whole lot in the book. Mm-hmm. And there is some, I think there's some fear about writing about people who are still alive. I know that when I write about history in books, I only really like to write about dead people because they're not there to complain. <laughs> I yeah, tend to prefer to get quotes for our openings from people who are dead. Yeah. 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 It, it makes it a little bit easier. But the, 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 the problem is, is that we're losing these bits of history because we're not going in and we're not interviewing these people. So one of the things I love about Bull of Heaven is, you know, the author sat down with a bunch of different people who were a part of the New York witch scene in the seventies and the New York witch scene along with the Bay area, witch scene were sort of the two biggest hotbeds. And I hate like New York centrism, you know, sometimes, and I hate like Bay area centrism, even though I live in the fucking Bay area now, but I mean, you know, there were witches all over the country, but in a lot of ways though, tastes are sort of made in large cities mm-hmm. and, you know, like Margot Adler weaves in and out of the Bull of Heaven because she was a part of the New York scene. So she saw some of those people and the first Gardnerians were living in New York City. You know, so there's a lot that New York has done, you know, a lot from the people of New York. So documenting that scene is really important. And so it's great to read these interviews mm-hmm. with right. people. And stuff. You know, to talk about like what was it like? to own a witch store in 1971. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like to operate something like that when there really weren't any like witch products mm-hmm. and there were only like 15 books, right? Yeah. I mean, what, what did you do? <laughs> what do you, what do you put on your shelves? Lots of stones. <laughs> now with that, yeah. with that in mind as an author, you know, there, there are a lot of books, obviously a lot, a lot of books that Wiser and Llewellyn, you know, published. There's a glut of, of books on the market. Um, you know, talking about Wicca and witchcraft and various things. But do you think that because we've lost some of this history? I think when we do history, you know, we get to a point like, you know, Gerald Gardner was public in 1951. Right. Right. He he goes public in 51. And then these books come out and then boom, you know, that's witchcraft and Wicca right there. Maybe they go a little something, maybe a little something else like Robert Cochran who was like the first traditional witch mm-hmm. in the early sixties, late fifties. Maybe they talk about that a little bit, maybe Starhawk, but you know, for the most part, we just don't talk about the past very much in our books. There's not generally like a ravenous readership for history books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that once I proposed a history of pagan music book 
and shot down. Jason Pitzel, who used to edit, he started the Wild Hunt and used to edit the Wild Hunt blog. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's one of the more knowledgeable pagan people I've ever met. He proposed a book to Llewellyn about the history of pagan music, you know, actual pagans making music. Mm-hmm. And they shot it down. It's like there's no interest. Mm-hmm. In history like that. Yeah, but I, I don't know that there's no interest in the community. There's just no interest by the publishers. So, like, to do a history book and to do it justice would take years of writing. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right? And it would require a lot of money just to travel and interview people. Yep. And then assemble that into some sort of book. Right. Right. So... It has to be worth your while in some way. Yeah. And the average pagan book sells a few thousand copies. Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe you're Matt Oren with Psychic Witch and you sell like 10,000 copies mm-hmm. right out right. of the gate. That mm-hmm. Matt is a different story for most of us. But I mean, like my books, when they're published, you know, they make, it's a, it's a print run of 4,000. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. out of that, you get maybe a dollar. Yeah. For all that, for all that work, it's a lot of work to write a book and the reward is very small. And to de- dedicate your life to some of this stuff for four or five years just is really hard. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, you know? we need, I think before we're going to start seeing that kind of work is we need pagan academia. It exists, you know, in some spaces. There's, there's a pagan, seminary, right? Well, there's a pagan journal called the Pomegranate. Mm-hmm. Okay. And pagan studies as a, as a discipline really began in the nineties. Right. And, you know, you see things. Right. I mean, but, I've read papers, but, but yeah. it's not like it hasn't gained the sort of traction. Traction. Yeah. That like even queer studies has. Yeah. I mean, there are really only two really great books of pagan history that aren't memoirs mm-hmm. or biographies. There's Hutton's book and then there's her hidden children by Chess Clifton. Mm-hmm. which is sort of the American version of drawing down the moon, but it's, you know, about a fifth the size of drawing down the moon. Mm-hmm. So it's really different than that particular volume. And then there's Aiden Kelly, who also came up with the name Mabon and Astara. <laughs> he's written some things and, you know, he's a PhD and stuff. And he's published some books about American early Wiccan history, but they're not things that most people read and, Kelly published them through a, like his own press right. because it wasn't something Llewellyn wanted to publish. Mm-hmm. So it's really tough getting that history stuff out there. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I really want to fix it and I don't know how to fix it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's going to take multiple people writing one book together. So it's going to be an editor putting together a bunch of stories from multiple people. So having a general editor who puts it all together. There was The Wizard and the Witch, which was Oberon Zell and Morning Glory Zell's mm-hmm. sort of oral history of themselves. Right. And, you know, because they were so involved in various parts of the pagan community, it does sort of read like a bigger history of American paganism. Mm-hmm. But still, it's only that slice of them. And there are so many regional paganisms, especially from the 70s and the 80s, like somebody would be teaching in Atlanta. And start a coven. And then they would have like 12 covens hive off of them. And so all these people were influenced by this one person that most people have never heard of. Right. And we don't document that kind of stuff. 
yeah. very well. Rowan says maybe if people studied their local history and traditions and put it together, the covens in their area or what the solitaries are doing and put it together to create a history of their area. So what you're saying is we need to like hive mind this process. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm willing to say we could host it at least in blog form. So if people would send us their local histories, yeah, we, we could put it up. up on the internet somewhere. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. People are interested in that. Feel free to send us your local history. And if you know what it is, if you know what it is, or you want to do the research on it and we'll, we'll put it up on the interwebs and link to it. And then beyond that, like we're not looking to publish a book anytime soon, but yeah. So no, now you have to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's not how it works. Jason, unless you're an oral history of the pagan community. This is, this is yours. (laughs) This is my gift to the three of you. (laughs) More like to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't write. He just comes in, he just says, hey, we're doing this now. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Blackhead says, I'll start a study group in there you Bay go. City. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and it really does, I think it's going to come down to people doing the research on their own, trying to find out what the history is in their area or for their tradition and recording it. Yeah. For it sounds like it's history. too much, it's too much for one person to have to do. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And to really do it justice. I mean, you can kind of go through, I mean, books are a big part of our community. So a lot of Chaz Clifton's or hidden children is kind of a history of witchcraft and print in the United States and how that influenced things. But there are so many other kind of local stories that we're kind of losing. Michigan. You know, it was great to hear your sponsor from Lansing, where I used to live. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I'm always kind of close to Michigan. And Michigan has this really great witchcraft history mm. that nobody talks about. There was this witch from Detroit named Gundella, who was a public yep. school teacher. And she released an audio album in the 1960s and stuff. And I talked about her at Convocation once, and most people didn't know who she was. You know, and mm-hmm. she just passed away in the 90s. It's not that long ago. I'm not that yeah. old yet. And <laughs> do you think some of it is, though, because a lot of the of the community, the witchcraft and pagan community, are solitaries? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the history, a lot of the leadership is found in covens. And the covens are are, are holding on to their history. And then you've got solitaries like myself and and. Uh, Ode and, and Carr, you know, we're all solitaries in our own traditions, or a majority of our listeners are solitaries. Yeah, we don't have a lineage. We don't history. have yeah. a lineage. We don't have a history of leadership. That- On the other hand, like, I could talk to people at the ADF mm-hmm. and get a good history from them of the ADF. That's true. Because I'm involved in a greater Right, you're involved in a greater organization. Organization, but right. you guys aren't. Yeah. Right. So, so do you think that contributes to some of this in just the fact that there's so many solitaries in the pagan community? I think it might. I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I was an eclectic and basically practiced as a solitary for a long time. I don't think I was ever in like a really good coven until I moved to California. And that was only nine years ago. And I was still interested in history. You know, it's just, I think a lot of us have so many things going on in our lives and not everybody's a history nerd. And I'm, you know, and that's fine. Nobody should be. My wife is not a history nerd. She's like, who the hell is this person? You know? <laughs> right. But I, I think it's, and maybe this is sort of what, you know, you were going back to earlier and what I was attempting to ask. Because there isn't this interest in history, there are, you know, and we talked about this before, there are things that we do 
in magic or in ritual or various things that we do that we've lost the thread of why we do them. And part of it is because we're not recording the history. Yeah. I, you know, it's like you think about chance and stuff and how we take all those for granted. I mean, people made those up in the seventies and then they spread like wildfire through the pagan community. And a lot of times nobody has any idea who wrote them or where they came from, that sort of thing. So we lose all the chants that I personally know, I've just heard people say at events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing, having lived in two different areas of the country, it's always really funny, like, what people know from place to place. Because even nine years living here, we will still go to a ritual sometimes, like a public one, and people will all recite, like, the same thing that we've never fucking heard of, Ari and I. <laughs> because, you know, paganism is still really regional in a lot of ways, and... Mm-hmm. Sort of what we get exposed to varies if we're in the Midwest or the West Coast or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, right. makes a good point in saying so many of us grow up in the broom closet. It can be hard to find other pagans of any stripe in Abrahamic dominated areas. There's also a lot of fear in some regions of being associated with paganism outside of a safe known pagan setting. Also, I think, you know, a lot of people who write history of other religious faiths, they have money and time. Yeah. And we we have very little of either. And that makes it yes. that makes it much harder. That's very true. Yeah. You know, you can write a, a history of evangelical Christianity from either perspective and somebody mm-hmm. is going to publish it and you're gonna have three years as a writer to write the book and you're gonna get an advance that's substantial enough to live off of for a little while and things. Or it'll be funded by a university or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then there's that too. And, you know, that just doesn't happen in our community. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That makes telling the stories of our past that much more difficult. That's yeah. true. That's but true. we're going to lose it if somebody doesn't do it. Yeah. That's true. You know, I mean, as long as we're aware of it, I think little bits of it get out, you know, yeah. right. I try to talk mm-hmm. to people. I try to preserve as much as I can. Well, and I think we're doing our part with our ancestor Spotlight. Spotlight. Right. You know, just trying to get focus on someone that people might not have heard of. Mm-hmm. Who is influential. Or they might not have, you know, they may know this historical figure, but don't yeah. know that they were a witch. Yeah, right. exactly. And I'm curious. Like the lady that mm-hmm. we talked Victoria about last week. Woodall. Yeah. Victoria Woodall, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I'm curious if anybody in the Discord has questions for Jason. I would also say, though, that you all do a great service just talking to people in our community. And preserving those conversations is a big step forward. Well, thank you. We're trying. (laughs) Because before the podcast, we really didn't document our history. And this is a new way now to document Mm. our history where we have a recording of somebody saying, hey, I did this. Mm -hmm. That's true. And before that, that didn't happen. There's another podcast. I don't know if you're familiar with them called Around Grandfather Fire. I don't know that one. And they actually, the majority of their stuff are interviews. Mm -hmm. So I'll make sure they get in contact with you. They're actually based in like uh, Ann Arbor, Jackson area. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Jim Two Snakes. Oh, Jim. I know Jim. Yeah, Yeah, Jim, Sarah Odinson, and Caitlin Stormbreaker. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, hearing Jim's name like reminds me of like 1995 or something though. It like takes me very far back. That's okay. Bill L said, you have to remember you were part of a coven in East Lansing. I don't know. We were, we did ritual with groups. Okay. I don't know if it was ever really a coven in the sense of a coven. 
like officially. Yeah. Well, why don't you define for us then what is the difference between a, a, a group that, a group that, that does together. rituals and, and a, coven. a coven? That's a really good question because I don't know sometimes. But <laughs> so ideally a coven is supposed to be a group that operates in perfect love and perfect trust. So it's a chosen family. And it's a very intimate group because it is a chosen family. You are free to be whoever you are at any moment with the coven. And I would also suggest that perhaps a coven implies a very, you know, we're going to at least meet for the Sabbaths eight times a year. Mm -hmm. And I think in Lansing, like we would have groups and we would host rituals and stuff, but we never like had a small group who met for every Sabbath throughout the year. So like just not a consistent. Yeah, it really wasn't as consistent. And we would try and it would start. And then after about four months, it would kind of peter out. So it was tough. And I had a great pagan community in Lansing. Don't get me wrong. We loved our pagan community in Lansing. But in some ways, like the highlights of the Lansing pagan community were camping out for Beltane every year and doing a ritual and Ari and Jason's Halloween party. You know, that's that's not eight Sabbaths throughout a year. So it's a little yeah. different. Right. So what was the group at the university that used to hang out? Because I saw that, like, you all kind of got together at convocation this last year. So I was a part of a group called Green Spiral at Michigan State University. And I owe Green Spiral everything. That's where I met Ari. Okay. So I met my wife there. And, you know, once people became involved with, involved with it, they were involved with it for a long time, like long after they had graduated. So, mm-hmm. you know, and it really served a need in Lansing when it started in the mid-90s because there wasn't an open pagan group. So we had a lot of people who weren't students coming to the group that were just residents. So we built this really big community. I think at its kind of height, we would have maybe 60 people at most of our Green Spiral meetings. And there were probably over two years, maybe 100 people who came in and out for various events and rituals and things that we did. So it was a pretty big group, and I still talked to a lot of them um, all these years later. And it lasted past us for a while, and then, you know, but it takes a couple of dedicated students to keep a group like that going. And I guess about a year ago, they kind of lost enough dedicated students, but it really meant a lot to us. It was really important to us. I still have all my Green Spiral (laughs) T-shirts. That's very cool. Now, uh, when we did um, Jason Mackey Part 1, you told us about um, a book that's coming out after the Yule book, The The Horned God. The Horned God. So tell us more about, tell us about that book that's going to be coming out in, when is that coming out? It should be out, I think, in April, maybe, of next year. It's sometime in the spring of next year. The Horned God of the Witches. Many years ago, I wrote a self-published book called The Horned God, and it's really terrible, and don't find it, and don't read it. And <laughs> now, you, now you've made it a challenge that someone <laughs> is going to. We all want it. I, can, I would send you all a copy of it. <laughs> you have to keep it in a safe, and you can't show it to anybody. Uh, <laughs> so when I got involved... There is a copy at Circle Sanctuary. They keep a copy there. You know, there's never really been a book about the Horn God through a press like Llewellyn or Weiser. So, and I always felt like it's something I should write. And I put it off for a long time because writing about the Horn God is a challenging thing. So the book is going to be called The Horned God of the Witches. And it's about how the Horn God is honored in witchcraft traditions 
and how we got to this point where the horn god is honored in modern witchcraft traditions. So a lot of different things in the book. Usually when you write a book, you kind of have a clear idea of, you know, you go from point A to point B to point C. And the horn god is really difficult because it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. So you have like ancient horned and antlered gods like Kernonos and Pan. But Kernonos and Pan were not the same deity in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. I mean, antlers are very different than horns. Pan was always hard and erect and ready to go. And there are no depictions of Kernonos like that. And yet, in sort of our modern pagan world, we've kind of merged the two in some ways. And when you read about Kernonos, you're often just reading about things that apply to Pan. So the book about how those gods were worshipped in ancient times, and then it's, uh, you know, and then there are kind of gods that are adjacent to that. Hearn, for one. There's also Mm -hmm. Ellen of the Ways, which is kind of a more modern deity. It's a, it's a female horned god, uh, mm-hmm. which started to become popular in the eighties. And then sort of deities like the green man who don't always have horns, but today we sometimes picture them that way. So it's about mm-hmm. those figures. And then it's, um, about the horned god as he's kind of honored in a lot of traditions and where those ideas came from. So, there's a part called the devilish horned god that looks at uh, how people have worshipped the devil or how people thought others worshipped the devil in the Middle Ages. Margaret Murray's book, The God, uh, the, the Witch Cult of Western Europe and the God of the Witches, those books came out in 1921 and 1931, are not very good historically. They're very problematic, mm-hmm. but they have really influenced how we look at the horned god today and so to not talk about those books is really short-sighted so i talk about those and you know there have been witches who worship a horned god who have said that it's that devil of the middle ages and early modern period and that's related to that so i wanted to write about that when gerald gardner started writing about the horned god in the 50s he wrote about a god that was also a god of death and a lot of times when you read about the horn god in books, it's always the horn god is the god of nature and fertility. And he's out hopping around and he's playing with bunnies outside. And that's not how people wrote about him at the beginning. It was much, much different. He was the dread lord of shadows. I want to bring some of that back. And, mm-hmm. and then there's also this weird chapter to Pan that, a lot of people are unaware of in the early 19th century, all of a sudden in England, people started writing about Pan again after not really writing about Pan for hundreds and hundreds of years. And this was not the God of the Greeks. This was a God reimagined as the Lord of the eternal English countryside. And how Mm. people wrote about that particular version of Pan is often how we speak about the horn God today. So, the book talks about that. Yeah. This sounds like a really good book, Jason. It does. Yeah. I, I'm still, I'm like editing the second part, so it's really fresh in my brain. <laughs> so I can like <laughs> ramble about it for long periods of time. There's also something that I discovered while writing the book. To me, the Horned God has always been the primary god of witches. feels like beginning in the 80s, that got to be lost in a lot of witchcraft traditions. Because then you start hearing about the God, not Mm -hmm. the horned God, but the God. And the horned Mm -hmm. God was only just a small part of the God. 
And, you know, it, it was like he was sort of being pushed aside in some ways, you know, and so I wanted to kind of write about that history too, especially mm-hmm. in Wicca. Why do you think the horned god was kind of pushed aside? Was there too much influence from that devil with the horns that people were freaking out, so they just wanted a, people just trying to de-spookify? Trying to de-spookify the god of the witches? One of the things about the late 70s and the 80s up until the early 90s that we often forget about was just how bad the satanic panic was. Yeah. It was bad. Oh, That's I don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can yeah. <laughs> Yes. And, I mean, there were people who were in jail, you know, up until like 2010 for things that yeah. just did not happen because yeah. of satanic yeah. panic. So I, I do think that there were people who wanted to downplay that witches worship a god with horns mm-hmm. because it was too it was too close to the devil which everyone was really frightened about i mean i grew up in the 80s i remember walking to school one day after reading something about satanists you know kidnapping children and how kind of scared i was which is really fucking stupid when i think about it today but People really believed these things were happening. And law enforcement was telling us that it was happening, right? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. They, had, they had task force. I remember yeah. that in where I grew up in Caledonia, they had a task force. In Caledonia. In, in, uh, some of, and in Middleville and some of the, the various, you know, or they. The small little town. Because they had. Nowhere where the Satanists are. Because apparently, you know, they, there were rumors that there were mm-hmm. satanic covens. Uh, that were meeting in the fields. My mother was convinced I, was, that they were in our woods. They were in our woods. I remember backyard. the first time I came to your house. So this was 1987. Mm-hmm. And your mom told me that there was a satanic group that was meeting back in the woods mm-hmm. because she had seen uh, like a desiccated cat or some kind of yeah. animal mm-hmm. back there that had been killed. And I'm like, you have Coyotes. all kinds of animals on your property yeah. How do you think this is human? Well, and then you had like reporters like, you know, shock reporters like Geraldo Rivera doing these big exposés on Satanism. And, you know, you had these people who were now Christians saying they'd been rescued out of satanic groups where they were, you know, killing babies and, mm-hmm. and kidnapping people and stuff. I mean, it was a huge deal. The quote-unquote so, experts talking about human sacrifice. The I, satanic I, panic was a very real I, I went to a Baptist church in the mid-80s, and we had two guys come who were brothers. They came to our church, too. <laughs> um, uh, to talk about music in yep. particular. Backmasking. Backmasking and... You know, how bad Black Sabbath and the Beatles and everything. My mom was. made me throw away all my records. I actually, I actually got talked into by them throwing my Beatles white album into the intercoastal waterway along with a bunch of my other vinyl because I was going to hell because of it. And like my Beatles white album, I had two copies. Mm. Like I had a copy I listened to and I had a still sealed copy. So now like, they're both in the intercoastal waterway. Now they're both in the intercoastal waterway in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida. So. Everyone in the discord is appalled. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a big thing. Like basically, I mean, again, I grew up Southern Baptist, so I was going to hell if I listened to, you know, the Beatles, the Beatles yeah. or Black Sabbath or anything. I- so it, it would make sense then, then that's why the horned god was kind of sanitized. Defanged. Yeah. Defanged. Yeah, I, I think that might have played a role. I also think that, you know, Wiccan theology is not very good. And 
I mean, so people are kind of free to do with it as they wish. And you listen to the charge of the goddess, uh, listen to the, you know, um, once in a, yeah, like there's all these goddesses named at the beginning and stuff. And it kind of made this idea that, you know, all goddesses are one goddess, all gods are mm-hmm. one god. So then the horn god is just simply one part of a bigger whole. And it's mm-hmm. easier to downplay him because of that. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes reading kind of older books, it felt like here's a secret just to witches. The horn god is this thing that we like, but we don't want to say it too loudly because it might cause us problems. <laughs> it, it really sort of felt like that. And now, though, we're mostly over that. Mostly. Yeah. There's still bad places and there's still people who believe a lot of dumb things. But we're mostly over that, so it's kind of more out front. Traditional witchcraft has really sort of pushed that figure more and more out front. So I'm really thankful for that. The book has like a chapter, like, you know, the horn god in Wicca, and then the horn god in traditional witchcraft. And a lot of traditional witches love to criticize Wicca. You know, it's just kind of a thing, and that's fine. But I was like, I agree with you all more than I do most Wiccans. You know, this is the horn god that I know. This is the horn god who's also a god of death as well as a god of life. So mm-hmm. I liked exploring that kind of aspect of it. And then there are rituals in the book and stuff too, of course. Because you don't want yeah, it to be just be Jason's footnotes and history. You want it to be practical too. And and just for Carr, there's a John Barleycorn ritual because I know he's a huge fan <laughs> of John Barleycorn. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of John Barleycorn. It's probably my favorite story of all time. Uh-huh. He has weird, violent feelings for John Barleycorn. I don't weird. understand even why I have those feelings. They I just, just fucking just hate them. viscerally yeah. reject it's weird. every yeah. fiber of your being for yep. no good reason. Just it's, hates John Barleycorn. So I'm looking forward to the John Barleycorn ritual you've included. <laughs> and we've been part of a ritual where I had to read part yeah. of the John Barleycorn story. And I did it with vim and vigor. But I hated every fucking part of it. <laughs> you were hilarious. Oh my god! Is there anything else you would like to share, Jason, about any of your books or your up? Your you're going to be doing an online uh, festival soon, right? Yes. Yes. So, uh, Pagan Unity Festival is a festival that usually happens outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It's a really nice festival. Obviously, they can't do it this year because of uh, the pandemic. So they moved mm, it pretty right. much online and they got like this great lineup of speakers because the people who run it are really nice. So if you've spoken there in the past, you're like, of course, I'll help you out. And so next weekend, the weekend after Memorial Day in May, they're doing the whole thing online and I'm doing two workshops online. Christopher Penzak is doing a workshop or two online. I think Janet uh, Farrar and Gavin Bone are doing workshops. It's a really impressive list and it's like 50 bucks for all of these yeah. really good workshops. And yeah. as more and more festivals move online, it's important that we try to support them because they need that money to go forward to in 2021. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think the, the value for this is really great. My question is, is does the $50 cover ev- all of the, yeah, all, all of the classes? Them. Yeah. Watch every yeah. single one of yeah. them. Like I, which is actually a lot, a lot more efe- efficient than going to a festival in person where you have to pick which workshop you're going to go to. Well, they're not paying to have presenters come in. They're not paying for a hotel room yeah. if that's a possibility or an airplane flight yeah. or anything like that. 
So their costs are lower. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're able to do a little bit more. Um, this, because I've lived in Nashville twice in my life, this is a festival I would love for us to speak at some year. Someday. Because some I just, when they're happening I again. fucking love Nashville. With all the hopes that 2021 is going to be better. <laughs> right, we can yeah. do that again. I begged yeah. for several years to present at that festival because I also grew up around Nashville. So it's a big soft spot there. I think that in the future, it's going to move indoors. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that'll be different, but it makes it more attractive to me to go to an indoor festival because I'm yeah. soft and it's hard to camp when you're from California and you're flying cross country. That's well, fair. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I, mean, I simply like, will not camp. I'm yeah. not from California, but, and, but I've lived there. Yeah. But I was soft way before I ever went to California. I fucking hate camping. <laughs> you couldn't pay me enough to camp. Like Wait. there is no money, en- enough money in the world for me to want to camp. He's camped once and that was enough. It also increases the chances that Ari will go with me if it's. Yeah. Right. It indoors. indoors. Yeah. Yeah. Except for convocation. It's always tough because we all, you know, that's kind of our hometown festival in a lot of ways, but we live 10 miles from Pantheacon. Right. Yeah. And so, hard call to make. Yeah. So, and she doesn't have unlimited vacation time. So she chooses the one that's closer with better weather. And sure. I can't blame her for that. But because Pantheacon is done in 2021, yeah. she might be at convocation. Wow. Oh. I'd actually get to meet her. Yeah. She's a legend. She's not well, a myth. Well, you know, she's a real. <laughs> She's not your I wife mean, I've seen Canada. pictures of her, but uh, other than that, I yeah. just don't know. I absolutely loved meeting her, and I got to go to the the kind of tarot and chill thing that she and Phoenix hosted, and it was just it was such a nice uh, change of pace, you know. And it was it was a lot of fun. She's I, a great person. I'm never letting Gwen go to a convention without me ever again. <laughs> I don't think it's your choice, though. Yeah, <laughs> I could bought a plane ticket. <laughs> I would have had to stay at a different place, but I could have bought a damn plane ticket. <laughs> I am saddened, though, that you were not there at PantheaCon, the two of you who didn't go, because I think it would have been fun for yeah. you oh, to yeah. see it for the last time. You know? Yeah, yeah, it was it was kind of a last-minute thing for me to be able to go, So, uh, but I was very grateful for that opportunity. But hopefully there will be, you know, again, once things hopefully come back to normal in 2021. Well, normal. Normal. The new normal. The new yeah. normal. A revised um, normal. I do worry about like going to convocation in 2021 and yeah, there's yeah. like social distancing that we all have to maintain at all times. And yes, and we're going to have to teach everyone not to open with a hug. But yeah. the, the thing with convocation will be nobody will get con cred. That's hopefully, yeah. One can only hope. One can only hope. Well, I mean, we really, we really dodged bullets at convocation and Pantheon. Yeah. Could you imagine if someone yeah. had been sick? In a room with a hundred people. Yeah. In a hotel. I mean, it could have really been a disaster. I mean, it was spreading then. We just didn't, we weren't really aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it could have gone really, really bad. And I did get ill and I got those two ill, but it was just, it wasn't COVID because we had none of those symptoms. It was just regular cold and flu. Yeah. 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 Could have been a real mess. Could have. But it, didn't. but it didn't. Thank goodness. Yes. All right. So that's it for this episode. So if you want to find us, you can fucking Google us. It's the number three pagansandacat.com on Google and a bunch yep. of shit shows up. And, and you can actually Google Jason Mankey and a bunch of that shit will show up too. But maybe so, Jason would like to share how people can find us. <laughs> sure. Share where people if can you find Google you. Google my name, a bunch of shit will show up. 
And if you go deep into that shit, though, there's a preacher who shares my name. And I kind of feel sad for him, but then again, I kind of don't. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Fair enough. Okay, so you heard it, people. Google that shit. Yeah. All right. <laughs> anyway, we do want to thank you, Jason, for hanging out with us and spending the time and and just telling us about your books and everything. You know we love you. So the feeling is very, very <laughs> mutual, and, you know, it was really fun. I mean, and what else are we going to do? 